Caleb, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes every day here with me in the Learner's Corner, and today I'm honored to be joined by Ike Miller to talk with him about his brand new book, Good Baggage, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. And you know, really what we want to do here on the podcast is create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because there's, it could sometimes be very difficult to engage in in certain conversations and many different types of conversations with people. And we want to create a safe place to where we can engage in that dialogue, to where we can disagree without being disrespectful, without demonizing anybody else. And we we can be respectful and that we can um, still maintain, even if there is a relationship, still maintain relationship or there's strength in a relationship through those conversations and in those conversations we we want to continue to learn and grow as well and that's really what uh really what a lot of this podcast is about and so if you are on this journey of lifelong learning i would just recommend that you subscribe to my Substack, to where i send out uh email each and every week with three things that are just engaging my curiosity three things that i'm uh just enjoying you know that are provoking my imagination and everything and it could be uh just the game as well it could literally be anything from youtube videos to quotes to movies and so on and so forth and that and all you got to do is check out the show notes and you can subscribe right there with your email address now whenever i found out about this book, I I always love learning about this because through working through our baggage, through working through many of the things in our life, through what happened to us as kids or what just happened to us all throughout our life, one, for me personally, it helps me, like working through those things helps me become a better follower of Jesus because often the things that happen to me get in, my, get in the way of my ability to love other people and it gets in the way of us being able to be the type of person that can handle difficult conversations, to handle those types of conversations to where there is, there can just be tension. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have Ike on the podcast today to help us work through those things and work through some of the things that happened to us in childhood and realize that not all of those things are bad things, that there can be redemption. In it. And as, as he says, you know, we can, that there isn't just bad baggage from it. There can be good baggage as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ike. Ike leads Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, a church plant he planted in 2018, along with his wife, Sharon Hade Miller, who has been a previous guest on the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll link to the episode with her. He has written about the intersection of theology, mental health, and family of origin issues in outlets such as Christianity Today and Missio Alliance. After confronting the impact of his own childhood, including a family history of substance use disorders, Ike has developed a passion for helping others who grew up in difficult circumstances to better understand how these environments continue to impact them and their relationships now. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Ike, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Caleb, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, you've you've written this book, uh, Good Baggage. And I think even, even just talking about 
baggage you know that's it's such a counterintuitive idea which really intrigued me about it because everybody has baggage whenever it comes to their family um very rarely do we think about good baggage that's right (laughs) so can you kind of like just talk to me just a little bit about the idea around good baggage yeah you know this idea just briefly you know came from my own story of working through the impact of my childhood and growing up in a context where my father's father struggled with an alcohol use disorder and uh, I knew that it had an impact on me as an adult. I knew it would play out in my relationships, but really COVID kind of forced a lot of that to the surface. Um, and just knowing in my context as a pastor, there's a lot of conversations around relationships. And so I was kind of working through my own kind of baggage, so to speak. And as I worked through that, I began to realize that there were also things that were specifically because of what I experienced that actually helped me have healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And I just was maybe using them in some unhealthy ways or just needed to learn how to leverage those things. But there were some actually some good things that came specifically from the environment that I grew up in. And so that was kind of the idea of not just like, okay, here's the ways it's negatively affected me, but here's some things that I can actually use for the benefit of my relationships now. And so that was where the idea came from. And then when it came to talking about titles, I was like, you know, what's a title that grabs grasps like the emotional tension of this, like carries some weight that carries some connotation that we all know what we're talking about when we talk about it. And yet at the same time kind of forces you to think, what does that mean? Good baggage? Like baggage is always bad. What are we talking about? Yep. Yep. You know, you, you mentioned that, uh, for you, you know, you, you had this baggage, but it surfaced in, in COVID. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of like what, what brought that to the surface? Yeah. So I, years ago now, so this was pre-COVID, I read a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics and named a lot of my, you know, experiences. I felt like for the first time, somebody really was articulating what I went through. It had 12 common characteristics of adult children of alcoholics that I was like, I thought everybody was this way, (laughs) but they're not what? Um, So it was something that I was aware of, but what happened during COVID in particular is you know, that was a season where, uh, you know, you know this to some degree, anybody that's been in a position of leadership of some sort and having to make decisions for other people during that time, it was a season where no matter what decision you made, somebody was going to be upset with you. Uh, somebody was going to be disappointed. Somebody was going to be frustrated. And so I, uh, like other pastors, like other leaders kind of walking through that, just found myself overwhelmed by this feeling of, man, everybody's upset with me all the time, no matter what I decide, to the point where I had to take some time off because I was just, I was exhausted. I wasn't managing criticism very well. And so during that time, I started kind of revisiting some of this stuff from being an adult child of an alcoholic. And one of the ideas that was central to this was this idea of codependency. And so I was reading a book on codependency, and it was talking about codependency as a trauma-related loss of self, meaning at some point in your life, you went through something that forced you to be someone other than yourself in order to survive. You you had to be who somebody else wanted you to be in order for you to survive this, to get through this, to protect yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, all of those things. And so because you've lost a sense of yourself, you're constantly looking for others to tell you who you are or to present an image of yourself that is acceptable and pleasing to others. And I realized that that's exactly what I'd done with my church. 
is I was trying to be what everybody in my church wanted me to be, to be pleasing to their, their, you know, perspective of who I should be as a pastor. But also part of that is there is this part of being codependent where you use your words and actions to manage other people's emotions and reactions. Mm -hmm. And COVID was a season with high anxiety, high emotions, high reactivity, and so trying to manage everybody's emotions and reactions with my words and actions was just not only exhausting, but impossible. Mm-hmm. And so kind of realizing, man, I've done that woke me up to the reality of I've got to do some work. There's some stuff I got to work through here. Mm-hmm. How did that show up in you? Like, can you think of an example of like how that played out in your life whenever yeah. you were just trying to manage everybody's expectations? Yeah. So a good example is uh, there's two things. One, I really prior to this believed if you and I can just sit down and have a conversation, we can work to in a place of an agreement on this. Like we can work this out. We can get to a place where we agree. And in that season, sitting down, having conversations and not being able to come to a place of agreement and that being devastating to me was just realizing, Oh man, I can't control people's emotions and reactions with my words and behavior. So that was one thing. The other thing that was really exposing was realizing, okay, in a church with differing perspectives, which is a good thing, at the same time, I would sit down with, you know, one person and have a conversation and realize like, okay, I was kind of shading my words and my language in a way that I thought would be most acceptable to them, not lying, but at the same time, like, how can I articulate this in a way that they'll accept? And then sitting down with somebody else and having the same kind of conversation, but they're coming from a different perspective. So how do I kind of shade the story or my perspective in a way that they'll accept and realizing if these two people get together and talk, they're going to be like, that's not what he told me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so realizing I've, I've got to get at what's behind this. Cause at the end of the day, it's going to ultimately compromise my integrity. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about like, whenever you discover that, like, Talk to me about where did you end up landing with that? Because that's still a challenge. It's still something you got to figure out. Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you be, you know, still the leader of the church, figure out all that. So talk to me a little yeah. bit about that. So part of it was realizing in those conversations where I feel this temptation to like move towards their position in order to make them happy with me is realizing, okay, if I put all of that aside, where do I fall? Like, where are my values? What is my perspective when it's not being impacted by what I think others want me to be or who I think I want they want me to be? So starting there, being able to say that, but then taking the step to say, okay, why do I feel this need to tell it in a certain way that will be a pleasing to others? And so that's when I started doing some really internal work of investigating what's going on a few layers down. And so I did something that I call the five whys. I talk about this in the book and it's this process of starting with the surface level pain, but then kind of asking a set of why questions to try to get at what's under that pain. So for example, if I had somebody that came to me that um, we just weren't going to come to the same opinion on things, then the, the surface level pain is, well, I want them to be happy with me. Well, why do I want them to be happy with me? Well, because I want them to think I'm a good pastor. Well, why do I want them to think I'm a good pastor? Well, because my identity is tied up in being a good pastor. And if I'm not a good pastor, then my value is caught up in something that I'm not good at. Yeah. (laughs) 
And so being able to get down to the root question is my value is tied up in how this person feels about me. Should it be that way? Yeah. Should my value be tied up in that? The answer is obviously no. And so then beginning to do the work of how do I disentangle those two things? And so a major phrase for me, a major term was this term of self-differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this, this idea of how do I remain emotionally and relationally close to you without being hijacked by your emotional world? So if someone comes to me and they're extremely anxious about something and they kind of want me to get anxious about it and get worked up about it, how do I stay emotionally and relationally close to them without being caught up in that anxiety too? And so that then leads to the question of being able to determine, okay, what am I responsible for and what am I not responsible for? Mm-hmm. I'm responsible in those conversations for my words. How do I articulate myself? Am I a jerk or am I careful with my language? I'm responsible for that. Am I responsible for their emotions? Am I responsible for fixing their emotions? No. At the end of the day, that is in their bubble of things to to fix. And so for me, a big part of that process was being able to distinguish what am I responsible for from what are they responsible for? Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think one of the things that I'm learning and and counseling and working through my own baggage, sure. good baggage and baggage too, <laughs> is um, is just how important clarity is in yeah. terms of like the person that you want to be and what you want out of a situation. Can you speak to like how clear, like the role that clarity has in, in this journey of, you know, spiritual growth, personal growth, all of that. Yeah. So if this is, uh, and hopefully this is what, what you're getting at and let me know if it's not, but I mean, I'm just kind of asking the question. I I would just be curious to hear your thoughts. So no, the clarity piece is getting clear on what are the ultimate ends that I'm going after. Mm -hmm. So in a moment in a relationship, for example, when I feel that pressure to give the answer that I think somebody wants me to give in that moment, I feel a pressure to, to just the short term benefit of they're going to be happy with me, but getting clear on what's the long-term impact of this. Well, the long-term impact of this is if I do this with everybody, a, it's going to compromise my integrity. B, People are going to see, does he have any conviction? Like, is there anything that he stands for? Because he just seems to be what everybody wants him to be. And so then being able to say, okay, at the end of the day, more than this person being happy with me, what I want is I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person who has conviction. I want to be somebody who people have respect for and, and have feel like if I go to this person, they're going to offer me some clarity of perspective. And so being able to determine what's my long-term goal versus just the short-term output that I want of this moment is big. So I think when it comes to your relationships, then I think you could look at a relationship and you could say, okay, I feel this impulse to just like give in to this person, to, to do what they want me to do, to do what they've asked me to do. But what we've got to do is in that moment say, for me to give into this impulse to say yes to this is ultimately me saying no to something. So what am I saying no to that? I'm not aware that I'm saying no to in this moment. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, if, if I'm in a relationship and a dating relationship, for example, and I want someone to <clears throat> respect the boundaries that I have around like my friend relationships outside of the dating relationship. If I feel this pressure from them, 
to prioritize hanging out with them over my friends and I continually give into that pressure, what I'm saying no to is my relationships with my friends and the clarity of I value these relationships. But in the moment, all we can see is the pressure we feel to cave to this. And so having the clarity of, okay, this is what I'm saying no to when I say yes, is really helpful for us to be the kind of person we want to be on a bigger scale. Yeah. You know, one of the things that also came to my mind is, is you have this statement that it's important for us to pursue health instead of pursuing what's normal. Yeah. And so um, actually there's a couple of things I want to go off of that, but we mind just kind of explain, like just explaining that and why it's important to pursue health instead of, you know, just what's normal. Yeah. So my kind of story, I grew up in a context where, you know, my parents, there was a lot of arguing. And so I remember going over to friends' houses and they're not being that like at night or at bedtime. And you're like, what, what is this? Like, (laughs) this is great. And, um, and so I was like, man, I need to emulate that in my relationships. Like, that's what I want. And there's something to be said for that. Like you want to pursue what you thought were normal relationships, The problem was that family had its problems too. Like I just didn't see them, right? Nobody is their, you know, true family experience when there's guests in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so it created a distorted picture of what normal was. And so this idea of pursuing healthy versus normal really normal is a very relative notion. Normal is what we've perceived as common. And just because it's common doesn't mean it's healthy. And so for me, kind of going beyond just, okay, what is normal based on what I saw at friends' houses? What did I see on TV? To actually, what are the characteristics of a healthy relationship? And let me make that my objective versus just normal. Mm-hmm. You know, you you kind of alluded to it earlier, but talk to me, like what what's an example of like what was normal for you growing up that you've had to like shift more towards being healthy? And I know you talked about like the codependency yeah. thing yeah. a little bit, um, but yeah, just anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, I think when it comes to my relationships with my kids, for example, um, what was normal was that as a child, it was mainly about obedience, right? Like, are you doing what I've told you to do? And then the goal of parenting was not for my mom so much, but for my dad was like, are you doing what I asked? And that's all that I'm really concerned about. And so the default then as as a parent myself is when I'm emotionally on a, you know, just frustrated and worked up, my default is to do what I saw, like to, mm-hmm. to put into practice what I saw. And so I've had to be very intentional about developing the ability to anticipate my inclination to do what I saw, because I, there's been so many times where after the fact, I was like, man, I just did what exactly I, you know I saw as a kid, what my dad did, and that's not what I want. And so having to be able to say, okay, how do I anticipate this? How do I see this coming so that next time I do this differently? <laughs> Yeah, I I think one of the ones that came to my mind for me. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. Okay, and so constant. I mean, you constantly managing people's expectations and moods and just all of that stuff. And I think where I realized that it shows up for me is within my relationship with my wife. Of like, mm-hmm. you know, 
I mean, and you you know this too. Like, yeah. you're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy 100% of the time. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> right. Feeling the temptation to fix oh, yeah. that. Feeling the temptation to be like, oh, I, I need you to be happy yeah. in this moment. Or I need you to be happy with me. Yeah. <laughs> we got we to gotta keep up that appearance. We got to keep up the image. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I would love to hear what, what are some of the things that are just um, – normal whenever it comes to relationships that maybe it's like okay that's normal and you see people pursuing that but that's not necessarily like yeah. healthy yeah so i don't know if this one makes sense um but i think one of the ideas of a normal relationship honestly and, and maybe it's a false notion of health but this idea of like in a normal relationship you don't argue mm-hmm. and at least it shouldn't be arguing and the fact of the matter is if you never argue most likely one of you isn't being honest (laughs) one of you is not really sharing your perspective you're doing it to keep the peace and in a healthy relationship you communicate both of you feel the freedom to be able to articulate your perspective and know that it's safe to do so and so in this this idea of a relationship where you never argue actually may not be healthy it just may be our idea of what normal should be. So I think that there's that piece of it. Mm -hmm. I think another idea of a normal relationship is um, this in a normal relationship, I should always feel madly crazy in love with you. Mm -hmm. Like that, like that's what we see projected on TV is like, that's what it's supposed to feel like in a normal relationship. When really what we're talking about is a romantic comedy where like they don't talk about all the hard things of life, of relationship, of a relationship that lasts 30, 40, 50 years, you know, whatever it may be. But there's this idea of in a normal relationship, you're always doing things that, you know, make the other feel amazing and special. And there is a place for those things. Absolutely. Like we should be doing those things in in a normal relation or in a marriage relationship and whatnot. But that is not what sustains a healthy relationship. What sustains a healthy relationship is meaningful friendship in that marriage is meaningful communication, clear communication, good communication. It's things like giving each other the benefit of the doubt, the the mm-hmm. ability and the willingness to be gentle towards one another. Those are the things that are going to lead to a, a long-term relationship. Mm. So that's another one. Um, I think in, um, friendship relationships or work relationships on the flip side, uh, work relationships is an interesting one because I think what we think is normal is, well, your boss just kind of tells you what to do. And when you don't do it, he gets mad at you or she gets mad at you. And then you go and do what they want you to do. And the reality is that leads to an awful work culture (laughs) (laughs) because it's like, you don't care about me. You just care about what I can produce for you. And we all have been in those work environments where this doesn't lead to a healthy work environment. It doesn't lead to healthy work relationships. And so being in an environment where, no, I need as an employee or an employer to communicate my care for my staff. They need to know that I care about their life beyond just what they do for me. And so I think that there's both like, um, un, uh, unreasonable expectations that we associate with normal. And then there are really unhealthy things that we associate with normal. And so we've got to know where are those things. Mm-hmm. Whenever, whenever you find, actually, I'd be curious to hear whenever you find yourself dealing with unrealistic expectations, how do you deal with that? And whenever you feel like that, maybe someone has unrealistic expectations of you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. So um, I think whenever I find 
or I, I have unrealistic expectations. I've just found that it's really helpful for me to ask what somebody's expectations are of me. And I think for a long time that felt like um, I should just know what people's expectations are. And that's one of the things that this book, Adult Children of Alcoholics, talks about is a common characteristic is you don't know what normal is. You know, like you don't know like what, quote, normal expectations are, or more importantly, what healthy expectations are. And so I've just learned, OK, I'm going to take the risk and ask, what are your expectations of me? Because I know, given my personality, I'm going to wear myself out trying to meet some expectations that's probably more than what you're asking for. And so it's probably healthy for me to ask what your expectations are of me. So with my wife, I think rather than just like assuming what her expectations are of me, I ask, you know, what are your expectations for me in terms of stuff around the house or with the kids or financially or, you know, just asking because that's going to lead to better communication also. When people have unrealistic expectations of me, I have leaned in the direction of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is if I feel like an unex unreasonable expectation is expected of me, I will kind of go to that person, especially if it's somebody on my team and say, hey, um, I am really struggling, I think, to meet this expectation that I think you have of me or that I have been working with. And I just need to know, you know, what is most helpful for you? What, what are you envisioning for this? And, and to be able to say, you know, I have to accept that I have limitations. And so I want to make sure I'm meeting your expectations within my limitations. And so really, I mean, it just goes back to that communication piece of just like, don't be afraid to ask because that at the end of the day is the only way you're going to get the answer that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there anything around, um, and I know that we've we've touched on it quite a bit, but just around communication that has really helped you in mm. terms of just being a better communicator in relationships. So a couple of things that I will say on that is people will not hear us unless they feel heard by us. That mm. that's been a a kind of a phrase that I have lived by really since the pandemic is if people don't feel like you've heard them, they're not really going to have the emotional capacity to then give you the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. to really listen to your perspective. And so a huge part of that for me is regardless of where I'm at in the relationship, the power dynamic of the relationship, whatever it is, I want to try to communicate that I've really understood what you're saying. So that may mean, you know, using some stock phrases as frustrating as they can be of like, what I hear you saying is X, yeah. Y, or Z and making sure they feel heard before responding. Because so often our impulse is to respond to somebody before they know we've really heard them. So that's, that's one big piece of it is, is making sure I am listening to others in the way that I want to be listened to, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is I can be really bad about being in my head. Mm -hmm. and realizing that what I will do is I will make assumptions about what they've said. And my default now is in conversations, when I am making assumptions or begin to realize that there's a place of unclarity somewhere, is to just be willing to ask the clarifying question. So for example, if um, 
Sharon, my wife and I are having a conversation and she has communicated something. And I think I know what she was saying, but not fully. Say, for example, you know, we work together. And so talking about sermon prep is a big part of what we do together. And so if she's given me some feedback, but there's a part of it I'm not clear on, rather than just guessing, like, I think this is what she meant. I'll go back to her and I'll say, hey, this is what I understood is this what you meant? Mm -hmm. And just realizing that one little question is going to take a ton of relief or a lot of pressure off of me and take a lot of guessing out of it. And so just knowing like, hey, I can ask myself all day long, is this what they meant? Or I can go ask them in five minutes, is this what you meant? And get an answer. So just Mm -hmm. being willing to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to... um... What, what you mentioned in terms of like our romantic relationships yeah. about the friendship component yeah. of it, which mm-hmm. is something that like I, I had to learn that through. Yeah. I, I would just be curious to hear just any other thoughts in regards to that of just things to where you've seen like, Hey, I, I don't know if this is being talked about. I don't know. You know, maybe this is the normal piece of it, but in regards to like pursuing healthy romantic relationships, any, any just thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I, um, when I do premarital counseling or newlywed kind of counseling, the book that I use is called Seven uh, Habits for Making Marriage Work by John Gottman and or Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Mm-hmm. And man, if, if people haven't read that, I would encourage you to pick it up. But one of the things that he says in there that just like blew my mind is he said, you know, a lot of times when couples are having trouble in their relationship, they'll go to counseling and there's this heavy emphasis on active listening. And mm-hmm. active listening is kind of this, kind of what I just talked about, where somebody says something and you repeat back to them what you hear them saying to make sure they feel yeah. heard. And he kind of walked through this and then he says, this doesn't work. And I was like, that's my whole <laughs> approach to this is like active listening. That's how you solve conflicts in relationships. And he's he's really what he's getting at is he's not saying like that's worthless or that that's mm-hmm. not important. What he was getting at is even more important than that is these principles that he goes into in the book. And one of the principles that's a major part of this is that like friendship piece. In other words, more important than like how you um, more important that you more important than that you never argue is how you argue. Mm-hmm. And in these arguments, he has these practices that he talks about of um, bids is one of the, the the terms that he uses where you're in the middle of a conversation and you say something like, well, you just never pay attention to me. That sounds like a barbed attack, but in there is a bid, meaning what you're really saying is, I would really like for you to pay attention to me. Like there's a request in there and our ability to hear those bids is what is going to change, you know, and, and help us to have a healthy relationship. Um, repair attempts is another one. So when you're arguing and it's getting really tense and then one of you makes a, a an inside joke between the two of you. Now, this is not always safe. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. it, not always safe, but in a, in certain contexts, what that's understood to be is a repair attempt. You're trying to move the conversation in a healthier direction. And he said that all of this depends on the level of positive sentiment that you feel towards this person. And when the relationship is entirely built on affection, I mean, not affection, I'm sorry, um, infatuation, when it's entirely built on how do you make me 
how distracted do you help me to be from my day-to-day life? It's not built on, this is a meaningful relationship where I feel positive sentiment to you. It's going to be hard for that relationship to be strong, Mm -hmm. but friendship is what will build the positive sentiment over a period of time, such that when somebody makes a bid, like you never pay attention to me, you don't respond to that in defensiveness, but you're able to respond to that in, Oh, so, so you, what you want, what you need from me is more attention, more time together. Mm-hmm. That kind of positive sentiment only comes from that friendship piece. So I hope that's explaining. Oh, kind yeah. of what yep, definitely. So I want to go back to work relationships to yeah. talk to me about what, especially as, as the boss. And that's where like, I, yeah. I tend to find myself in that. What, what has helped you just be more, um, I guess, I don't know if friendly is the right word, but just be more, be more intentional with mm-hmm. the relationship with your coworkers. Yeah. So there's a couple of pieces to this. Uh, I went to a conference several years ago and uh, they drew this diagram of, uh, it was like one circle and then three circles parallel below that. And they went to a group of team members and they said, okay, on this diagram, the circle at the top represents your boss and the circle below that, the circles below that represent your team. And or represent like your coworkers. And they said, draw a circle around your team. And all of the employees drew a circle around just the lower section of <clears throat> circles. Mm. Then they went to the bosses and they said, draw a circle around your team. And they drew a circle around themselves and their team or their 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 employees. And what this <clears throat> uh, study or practice was trying to show was that there is a gap between how a boss sees his team and how employees see their team. And that gap is what is the trust gap. There's the gap in trust that with my colleagues, my kind of equals, there's a high level of trust in that power gap. There is a lack of trust. And the only way that you resolve that gap is through communication. Mm-hmm. And so I took that and I was like, oh man, that's so helpful. But it's not just communication in general. Like if I, you know, let's say you were on my team and you were working one day in your office and I come by your office and I'm like, Caleb, how are you doing today, man? You'd be like, I'm I'm good. Um, But the whole time you're sitting there thinking like, why are you really here? Like, like, will you get to what you're really here for? And So being able for me to say, okay, how do I remove that skepticism? How do I increase the trust? And so for me, what that looks like is a part of my meeting with each person on my team is the first 15 minutes is the time that the employee sets the agenda. The team member sets the agenda. We can talk about anything you want during this time. I'm going to ask how you're doing. I'm going to ask about your family, but I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about Mm because this is not just about what you can produce for me. I genuinely care about you. Yeah. Uh, And so being able to do that, another thing that is kind of what I would call, I talk in the book about is kind of a piece of good baggage is growing up in these environments where there was dysfunction of some sort, especially with an alcoholic parent or somebody that struggled with a substance use disorder, or someone just had a lot of anger even is you kind of constantly go into rooms, reading the emotions of the room. How are people feeling in this room? How are people doing? What's the body language like? Am I safe? Do I need to run for cover? Like what's going on, right? And so now as an adult, we walk into every room reading the emotion of the room. We don't even think about it. We just do it. And so we look at faces and we see, okay, where are people at? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they angry? And we take that information and use that in how we enter a room. 
that can be problematic. And that I talk about that in the book, but that also can be a tool that we use with our team. And so I'll look at my team and I see, man, somebody's clearly having a tough day. They're, they're just not fully present and reading them. I can then go to them and say, Hey, tell me what's going on. How are you doing? Um, seems like something's weighing on you a little bit. That communicates a level of care for my team that goes beyond just like acquaintances or niceties. It's actually like expressing care. And that really sets us up for a healthy relationship in our work environment. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I want to ask you about is just like friendship in general. That seems to be, uh, I mean, even even before COVID, but since COVID, it's just a little bit, it's just even just like as an adult, it's hard to make friends. And I, I would just be curious to hear just any of your thoughts on Mm -hmm. friendship how do you go about maintaining friendships building friendships things like that yeah i hope this is helpful i tend to be more of a lone ranger type i guess you would say Mm -hmm. and and so in that realizing like i don't feel like i feel like i have a lot of people around me like my team my wife you know my kids you know all of those things and so i don't feel that sense of like lack of relationship until i really feel it And then I really feel it. And I think in this journey for me, and I think about my relationships, I think I realized that I needed to be a better friend to other people Hmm. that, that I was focused a lot on like, okay, when I need them, are they there for me? Are they what I need? And I honestly realized, I think I probably am expecting more of my friends than I'm giving my friends. And so that was the process for me. And again, I don't know that that's true for everybody, but a part of that sort of self-differentiation is also being able to say, when I look at the relationships, being able to say, not just how is that relationship on the whole, but how is my contribution to that? And I realized there were a lot of relationships that were, they were good on the whole, but they were good because quite honestly, other friends were carrying more of the weight on those relationships than I was. And I needed to give more to those. So that's been a little bit of it for me. Um, but I realize that's just my experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'd love to go back to, you know, we were talking about how our tendency sometimes could be to pursue normal instead of healthy. I'd be curious to hear as it relates to uh, relationships, bag, good baggage, bag baggage, all of that stuff. Is there anything to where it's like, well, we, we actually, we, we pursue one thing, but mm-hmm. we need to be moving more towards you know, in this case, you know, we pursue normal. We yeah. need to be pursuing healthy. Is there any, like any other things like that that you see? Yeah. So another one is um, a lot of the good baggage that I talk about is really the, like the, the tool, the concept, whatever is good in itself, but we're leveraging it in ways that are actually destructive to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, one of our inclinations as children in dysfunctional contexts is ultimately we give loyalty pretty easily, meaning there's safety and loyalty, even if it's to the wrong people, even if it's to a dysfunctional relationship, the loyalty to this person is better than being alone or the evil I know is better than the evil I don't know. Um, We grew up in an environment where maybe loyalty was demanded of us. And so even though it was dysfunctional, we had to give that. And so we find ourselves in relationships now where it's dysfunctional, but we find ourselves loyal to it. And so that's one of those things where 
the tool, the idea of loyalty itself, the fact that we are willing to give loyalty and that we are incredibly loyal, that is good in itself. But we've got to be thinking through, do the people that we are giving our loyalty to deserve it? Are we loyal to the right people? And so in that sense, it's more about being able to examine what are the reasons I'm loyal to this person and are those the right reasons? Do I need to be you know, less afraid of what happens if I break my loyalty to this person because they didn't deserve it in the first place? Am I loyal to this person because they kind of hold some stuff over my head and kind of say, if you're not loyal to, to me, then like you're a bad friend. Um, do we make excuses for why we aren't breaking loyalty to somebody else when in reality, if we're really honest with ourselves, they don't deserve it. So loyalty is one of those things that I think we can leverage it for the good of our relationships, or we can use it for self-destructive and unhealthy relationship reasons. Mm -hmm. What what helps you identify like, Hey, it's time to work on like some of the baggage. Yeah. Yeah. A big piece for me is, this idea of paying attention to your pain points. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we experience relational pain, we'll either find some common characteristics across different relationships. We'll realize, Oh, I feel this in multiple relationships. Um, or we will notice pain in different relationships, different kinds of pain. But in either case, oftentimes that pain is the symptom of something much deeper and so we need to do that work of digging down a few layers to get at what's really going on beneath the surface. And so for me, following that pain is kind of like when there's a weed in my yard. If I just cut the top off, if I just pull the top off, like that weed's going to come back. Maybe not in the same place or, you know, maybe whatever, but it's going to come back. And so I've got to do the work of digging down. And so I call it following the pain. Um, and what you're really trying to do is get at the root of it so that you're not just dealing with symptoms over and over again. You're actually addressing the, the deeper issue. Mm-hmm. You know, another uh, connection that you make in the book is you talk about the connection between boundaries and self-respect mm-hmm. or self-disrespect. Can you kind of play out how those work together? Yeah. So the way that I kind of talk through that is as children growing up in dysfunctional contexts, a major part of dysfunctional contexts is boundaries were not respected. They were routinely broken, whether that was physical boundaries, verbal and emotional boundaries, mental boundaries. Um, and those play out in all kinds of different ways. But because we grew up in an environment where our boundaries weren't recognized and respected, we really struggled to know how to respect ourselves Um, and so we have to start with kind of a definition of what is respect. Respect is between two people is recognizing that you have physical, mental, and emotional property that is not mine to just do with it, whatever I want. And so to respect your, to respect you is to acknowledge, I can't just cross those lines and do with it, whatever I want. Self-respect then is saying, well, I have that too. I have physical, mental, and emotional property that others can't just do with it what they want. And so the way that these overlap, the way that they connect is the boundaries are the the predetermined course of action that we will follow when that property is being disrespected or being threatened. When somebody's trying to trespass onto our, quote, property without our permission. And so our boundaries are our ability to protect that property. Now, 
when we don't have that sense of where those boundary lines are of, of what is okay for people to say to me and not okay to say to me, what is okay for people to do to me and not do to me. It's impossible to set those boundaries and to stick to them. And so part of our process is being able to, to, to learn what is acceptable for me to say, this, this is not something you can do what you want with and what is. So that's kind of where those overlap. Is that clear? Does that make yeah. sense? Yep. Yep. You know, one of the, the, one of the other things that you talk about towards the end of the book, and I just want to tease it a little bit because I know that you get into a lot of these things, yeah. is um you talk about internalizers and externalizers, which yes. was which was really is one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. For for people who find themselves as internal processors and external processors, what might be one thing for each of them to just keep in mind? Yeah. So the idea here is that and this is true of dysfunctional families, but it's true generally as well of how do we respond to pain or broken relationships, which is the internalizer will internalize the pain, meaning they will look for answers inside of themselves that if I just do this better or do this differently, then that will fix what's going on around me. Externalizers are the opposite of that. Externalizers will say, this thing has happened and it's because of all the things happening outside of me. And if everybody else will get their junk together, then things will be okay for me, right? So we either internalize it or we externalize it. And kind of what I'm, the point that I make in the book is the goal is not to be one or the other. At the end of the day, it's not about all of us being internalizers or all of us being externalizers. The objective is that we internalize at the right time and we externalize at the right time. Mm -hmm. So if it is something that's mine to take responsibility for, I need to take responsibility for that. Yeah. When it's not mine to take responsibility for, I need to be able to not take responsibility for it. So for the internalizer, I always challenge people to say, what if this isn't my responsibility? Mm -hmm. Now, the answer to that may ultimately be, it is my responsibility. But for internalizers, that rarely even crosses yeah. our mind that it might not be our responsibility, right? Yeah. So asking, what if this isn't my responsibility? And for the externalizer, it's the, it's a similar question, just kind of the reverse. What if this is my responsibility? Yeah. <laughs> That may have yeah. never crossed your mind that there is something that you did that caused this brokenness or this pain. And so just asking that simple question for both of us is asking a question that is not in our nature to ask, but is a helpful step towards the a healthier response to things. Mm -hmm. Well, I got two other questions that I want to ask you. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to just talk about anything that we haven't covered in the book that is either just and even just could could be about what we've been talking about. That's just top of mind that you want to make sure yeah. that we cover. You know, where a lot of this came from for me was realizing that relationships are both were a major source of pain for me. And, and when a relationship was broken, I felt that very intensely. And yet I cared a lot about my relationships. And so that it makes sense that those go hand in hand, right? If you care about something when it's broken, you feel it. And that's where a lot of my process began is recognizing that because of what I experienced as a child, I want to see my relationships go differently. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I think, listening to this and, and reading this for the first time feel that instinct of, I don't know how to have healthy relationships. I just know I don't want the relationships I saw in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just offer that encouragement to people that that is, that is progress in itself to be able to say, I don't know 
how to have healthy relationships. I just know I want it to go differently. That is some crucial motivation to help you take steps in the right direction. So just naming that for people, I think is hopefully freeing, but also encouraging. Yeah. One, one of the ideas that I really appreciate in the book is you talk about that we need to honor the work that our mm-hmm. younger selves did, because even, even, you know, the good or the bad baggage, it was in an effort to protect ourselves. Exactly. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that has looked like for you of like honoring the work that younger Ike did to protect yeah. you? Yeah. You know, I um, think about kind of the context I grew up in and, and there's a lot of things that come to mind immediately, but one of those is um, part of my self-protective mechanism was to try to meet the expectations of the people around me. And if I could make you happy with me, then I was safe. And as a child, you know, I have to applaud my younger self for, for being able to have the, the instinct to say, this is what I have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. And yet now being able to recognize that is what I would call an outgrown coping mechanism meaning at some point it served a purpose, but now it no longer does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can still use that. Like that creates and has created a work ethic in me that has yeah. been to my benefit. It is good for me. I just need to know where my limits are and I need to accept those. And so that's one of those things where I'm like, I am grateful that my younger self did that work and I want to honor them. And I, I'm grateful that rather than just like blaming everybody else and taking no responsibility, my instinct was to take responsibility, but I also have to know where the limits of that are and where that begins to hurt me. Does that make, is that kind of yeah. in the line? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The last thing I want to ask you about is like through this process of like working through your baggage, working through your past and getting healthy, what yeah. have you learned about Jesus or what's one thing that you learned about Jesus? You know, one of the things that is, I think is so hard for people and especially those of us who struggle with things like codependency is recognizing that Jesus was not codependent. Jesus had boundaries. Jesus had, you know, a, an ability to not just do what everybody around him wanted him to do. One of the things that I think about is at the end of Mark chapter one, uh, talks about how you know, people with all kinds of sicknesses came to him and he healed them. And it sounds like kind of that went pretty late into the night of him doing that kind of work. And then it says the next morning he got up early and went off to a secluded place to pray. And Peter and the disciples come out to find him and they're like, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Kind of this idea of like, we want you to keep doing what you were doing yesterday of just healing everybody that comes out to you. And Jesus's response is, let's go on to the next village. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, there's all these people that need you, you know? And, and Jesus is able to see like, there's a place for that. There's a place for helping people. There's a place for, for serving people. But that doesn't mean I just be what everybody around me wants me to be. And so realizing Jesus is actually one of the most well differentiated people, you know, that we know of and that yeah. we read about. Um, and so learning that just gave me the freedom to be able to say, okay, that means if there's people in my church who have need something, I don't have to just give to that beck and call every moment in a way that's just going to either destroy my family or destroy me emotionally that was such a gift for me. Yeah. Well, Ike, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Good Baggage, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? 
Yeah. So uh, my website, IkeMiller.com, links to the book there. Um, social media is Ike F. Miller. Uh, so that's on Twitter, Instagram. Um, and then I've also done sort of a mini series podcast around this, just kind of introducing people, some of the ideas in the book. And so that's the Good Baggage podcast. So yeah, would love to connect with people. However, Awesome. Well, Ike, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for the great conversation and for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I think reflecting back on the conversation and in reading through the book, there's a couple of things that stand out to me. One is just what I talked about in there briefly is the importance of getting clarity around what you want and thinking through the type of person that you want to be and thinking through what type of relationships that you want to have and what life that you want as well, which isn't, which isn't always easy. And then realizing that there is just going to be things that get in the way of that. Like we all have things that have happened to us. We all have um, obstacles or challenges or just difficult things. Not even, they don't even necessarily need to be an obstacle or a challenge. And sometimes it's not always somebody's, uh, necessarily somebody's fault. And that sometimes things just, just happen that make very difficult circumstances. And that doesn't mean that it's not, um, It doesn't mean that it's not complicated either, but we all have things that happen to us. But I think focusing on that clarity of what do you want and then comparing it with, well, you know, for me, was this, is this, does this align with, with God, with the values of being a follower of Jesus, of being a person of love and comparing and contrasting it with that? as well and just realizing okay so what's getting in that way that's what i need to deal with because it's getting in the way of me being the person that i want to be and and i guess that also ties into this idea of pursuing health versus pursuing what's normal and that the the best indicator of that is not like the best indicator of figuring out what you want in a relationship is not always looking to someone else or looking out to around what's normal. Sometimes it can be. I know that has been the case for me of just seeing what other people have and going like, that's the type of relationship that I want. That's the type of friendship that I want. But realizing that 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 isn't always that isn't always the case. And I guess it even goes back to what I talked about of like digging into like the why of that of doing the work of figuring out like okay so why do i want this type of relationship why do i want uh this type of friendship and digging and figuring out the the thing of like okay do i i guess why do i want that and just doing the the work of working through that so yeah so those are those are some of the things that i'm thinking about from just my conversation with ike and so if you enjoyed this conversation, if you're on, again, if you're on the, the journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe to my Substack to where I just give recommendations, three recommendations each week of some of the best things that I am learning from, from podcasts to music and movies and uh, sometimes video games. It literally, it can, it could be anything. It's just things that are engaging my imagination, engaging 
my attention and, and that are I'm either enjoying or that are making me think. And I know that it can be difficult to find those things. That's part of the reason why I'm doing this newsletter as well, because it can be difficult and sometimes it can be expensive and there's nothing worse than buying, uh, buying something that you're wanting to learn from and regretting buying it because it's not as good. And that's what the newsletter is for, to give recommendations to help you figure out that just a little bit. So with that, I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you again to Ike for coming on the podcast as well and for the good conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.